Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. So good to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be taking our subject, our thoughts, from chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to be taking the majority of our thought and subject matter from verses 9 through 11, and then verses 19 and 20. While you're turning there, once again, just Pastor Brandon, thank you so much. I love you with all of my heart. And um, as he said, we were we were down on vacation for a couple of weeks, and um, I intentionally didn't tell anybody we were coming down because you know I was like, yeah, I'm just going to come and rest. And and then um, I texted him this week, and he said, hey, while you're down, would you would you mind coming to minister for us? And um, initially, I was like, oh man. Um, but I love being with you guys. I really do. Uh, it really is an honor um, to, to always be with you. And I count you guys as family. And so just thank you for making us always feel so welcome. Uh, love you guys with all of our hearts. I want to talk to you this morning from a simple and, and brief thought uh, that I've just entitled Culture Wars. Culture Wars. And you'll understand that more as we as we move along throughout the service. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you with all of my heart, God, for the opportunity, God, to be with these, your people, once again. Uh, Father, you know, God, even more than I do, how much I need you, God. And I'm asking this morning, God, for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to help me, God, to deliver uh, the things that you've put in my heart for this moment in time. Uh, God, I pray that you would give me the ability, God, to just clearly communicate the truths that you've been stirring in my heart actually for some time now. And God, I just pray that for every one of us today, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive everything that you want to say to us in this moment. And God, when it's all said and done as we do now, we'll be sure to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen. Culture speaks of the set shared, the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize a particular group of people. I want to say this one more time because it's important for where we're going this morning. Culture speaks of the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize a particular group of people. 
And as we've titled the message, Culture Wars, culture wars happen or take place whenever two distinct cultures intersect and begin to fight for prominence or superiority over the other. Something that was very real and very vivid when the kingdom of God began to break into Corinth. Now, the Corinthian church was both founded, as most of you know, and fathered by the Apostle Paul. Uh, They were fathered by him not only in the sense that Paul was instrumental in their spiritual birth, but also in the sense that he was instrumental in their spiritual development and maturity. He himself says that this is the case in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And he says to the Corinthians that his relationship to them as a father in the faith has been somewhat unique. Not only because he played an integral part in their initial coming to Christ, but more so because since that moment, he has done everything in his power to help them as it concerns their upbringing and their maturity in Christ. And maintaining this fatherly relationship with the church at Corinth means that there are times when Paul is compelled to say some challenging things. As a father to two beautiful little girls, I sometimes find it hard to say the hard things to them. I find it hard. They're so beautiful and cute and bubbly half the time that there are times whenever I love them so much and I think they're so cute and so beautiful that I find it hard to say hard things to them. But what I also know is that if they are to truly develop and become a helpful and meaningful part of the society in which they live, they need both affirmation and instruction. And as it concerns our walk with God, Paul understood this very well. And if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will find that Paul spends time both commending the Corinthians for their vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. He really begins the book by doing this. And he does it in one way or another throughout the entirety of the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul spends time all throughout the book both commending the Corinthians concerning their vibrant faith but he also spends time challenging them to maintain a Christly witness in a Christless culture. I want to say that again. That he spends time as a father in the faith to them, commending them for their vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, but also challenging them to maintain a Christly witness in a Christless culture. And this really describes, it really encapsulates Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in particular. Paul, as he begins to write, begins to write this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul begins to express a concern in his heart. And his concern is that there are some in the church at Corinth who are living in ways or or who are beginning to live in ways that are damaging to other people and that are defaming the name of God. This is his concern. And there's specifically two issues in chapter 6 itself 
Now, as you read the whole book, there are a myriad of issues that Paul feels the need and feels compelled to address. But in chapter 6 in particular, there are two primary issues that Paul is dealing with. Number one, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Paul has to address people who were getting into public disputes with other believers. They were having arguments amongst themselves and they were forming lawsuits and so on and so forth and they were taking their problems and their issues, their discrepancies that could have rightfully been dealt with in the confines of the church through true spiritual leadership and they're taking that out into the public um, and through this act they are defaming the name of God. Not only that, but as we get to the latter part of chapter 6, um, the people of God, at least a few of them in the church at Corinth, are beginning to live and lead sexually immoral lives. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to delve into the specifics of what was happening in chapter 6 because I really want to get, a, get to the heart of the matter of what the apostle is having to deal with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ultimately, as Paul deals with issues all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is concerned that there are believers in Corinth that are beginning to live in ways not in accordance with who God has made them to be. The people of God, those who God has saved and redeemed, the, the people who have been, by their proclamation and declaration, the people who have been brought out of darkness and into the light of God are beginning to live self-focused and self-centered lives. Their actions, not just in chapter 6, but really throughout the entirety of the book are beginning to prove that they are having little regard for the glory of God or the good of other people. Instead of loving and living for the benefit of those that were around them, it seems as though there were a group of people or some people in Corinth who were beginning to live at the expense of others. They were becoming strictly inward focused. They were worried only about that which pleased and benefited them. And while being only concerned with that which pleased and benefited them, they were wreaking havoc to anything or anyone who got in the way of seeing those desires fulfilled. The problem in Corinth is that the Corinthian church, after coming to Christ, were once again beginning to be influenced by their present culture to believe that it was okay and actually right to live their lives in a reckless and, self, and, and selfish fashion. To do as they wished was the cry. We want to do what we want to do because we have been given freedom and we have been given liberty in Christ, not worrying about what or who it damages in the process. And this is what Paul briefly alludes to and mentions in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. Whenever they say, all things are lawful for me. In other words, because we're in Christ, the things that we do in the flesh don't really matter and they don't really affect our eternal soul or our salvation. 
And Paul responds to this popular estimation not only of the culture, but also of people in Corinth. And he says, maybe all things are lawful. Maybe you have the liberty to kind of do what you want to do, but not all things are expedient. In other words, not everything that you do is beneficial to your testimony for Christ or to the people who are around you. Now this is the life in Corinthian culture. This kind of selfish, self-centered, inward-focused life. This life was expected of the everyday Corinthian. After all, to be a Corinthian, and historians will tell you this, to be a Corinthian meant you lived purposely in a careless and an immoral fashion without any regard for the world around you. But Paul wants them to see that even though this is the expected life of the Corinthian, it is not the life that is expected of the everyday Christian, whether in Corinth or not. That although this is the accepted lifestyle of the everyday Corinthian, it is not the accepted and should not be the embraced lifestyle of the everyday Christian. And because they were becoming so inwardly focused with little regard for the glory of God and the good of those that were around them, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8 that this was a great defeat for them. He literally tells them that the way in which you're living with little regard for God's glory being manifest through your life and your brothers and sisters being brought up and built up in the faith, it's actually hindering Christ from being put on display through your life. It doesn't, this is what Paul is saying, it doesn't speak well of who and whose you are. And this is where he begins to say in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, um, uh, verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that those of the kingdom, those who are truly born of the Spirit and a part of the kingdom of God, they do not live lives that willfully revel in and practice such things. Those who are truly birthed of the Spirit and a part of God's kingdom do not see it acceptable to live lives only unto themselves. And so Paul is beginning to bring this correction. Those in the kingdom don't willfully live or practice such things. And Paul then says in verse 11 that guys, remember that you are in fact of the kingdom. Be reminded that you are no longer of this present culture that says you should live for yourself, by yourself, and to yourself. You have become a part of another kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But now you have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is Paul's reason 
as to why they have a responsibility to live differently than the world around them. It's not just because Paul is being like the mean dad and kind of like we do with our kids sometimes, we, we tell them don't do thus and so, and they say, why? And we say, because I said so. Right? That's, unfortunately, that's my response sometimes. That without really taking the time to sit them down and explain why this would defame the name of God through their lives, or how this might possibly damage someone's heart and faith around them, instead of doing that, we just say, well, it's because I told you to do it. But Paul doesn't do that here. Paul addresses the issue and he gives them the reason why he expects them to live differently. And that is because they are a part of a new kingdom. Although they were living amidst a culture that was rooted in selfishness, they belonged to a kingdom that was rooted in selflessness. And being a part of this new kingdom means that they have been given new cultural norms. They've been given a new set of ideas and beliefs and value systems by which they must and can live their life by. Selfishness. Self-centeredness, living at the expense of others, is not welcomed in a culture that is ruled by a selfless leader. This is what Paul is trying to get across to them. Remember our selfless leader. Remember the captain of our salvation who has gone before us willingly laying his life down for the good of those who hated them. Remember him. And remember how that through His selfless sacrifice, He purchased your soul and gave you the same Spirit that lived within Him. And so, beloved, there, what Paul is saying is that there are certain thoughts and opinions that lie at the heart of our culture that we need to reject and forsake. And living only for ourselves is one of those opinions. Living only for our betterment. Living only for our good. Living only for our pleasure and our satisfaction is one of the core roots that have our culture bound. And it's an idea, it's an opinion, and it's an estimation that we must reject because we are part of a new kingdom. And with that new kingdom, we've been given a brand new cultural identity. Because Jesus gave His life for us, we should be motivated to live our lives for Him and for those He died to save. Beloved, in Jesus Christ, you and I as believers in Christ are called to a different standard. And that standard is one that involves you and I every day of our lives living for the glory of God and for the good of those who are around us. Living beneficially, living expediently for the people, believer or not, that Jesus died to save. We, much like the Corinthian culture, and when I say we, I speak of our culture, especially in the West, 
in North America, we have a culture that is literally has been bred by selfishness and, and, and personal gain and my own priority and benefit and pleasure. And the king of the kingdom that we are a part of compels us to come from that and to embrace what he sees fit. It is impossible, beloved, for any believer in Christ, for any Christian, to live on an island by themselves, for themselves, or unto themselves. It is God's intention that the life of Christ within every one of us have an opportunity to intersect and impact the world around us. We are called to intersect and impact, not intersect and integrate. That's called syncretism, right? it's, It's the blending of one set of ideas and values and beliefs with another for the sake of compromise. And what Paul is trying to get the the Corinthians to see is that you've not been called to to blend in. You've been called there to stand out. You've not been called to syncretize with their beliefs and values and motives. You've been called to stand out. And I believe that at the heart of what Paul is saying, not just in chapter 6, but, he, but the entirety of the book, is that the foremost way by which they will have a faith that really stands out to the world around them is by loving one another. It sounds simple, but it all goes back to loving God and loving our neighbor. And I think if there's something that we can take from what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think there are two temptations that we in the church right now are facing. Very real temptations that we face in the present. Number one, it's like the Corinthians being among each other while living to the disadvantage of each other. In other words, not taking the liberty and the power that we've been given in Christ to truly live for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of one another, that's a very real temptation we face in our day and in our hour. And secondly, it's the temptation of totally disassociating ourselves from one another. An idea that the writer of Hebrews said would be very prominent in the last days. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, the writer of Hebrews encourages us that as the day of the Lord draws near, that we should be striving to gather together more and more because we're going to need one another's strength and one another's encouragement. But when problems and Uh, begin to arise and things begin to get hard, one of the first responses that we have somewhat naturally is we kind of fend for ourselves, right? We, we, We curl up in a ball, we get in a corner and we fight me, myself, and I. But the writer of Hebrews says that although that temptation is going to be very real, believers, make sure, make sure that the heart of God continues to beat within you. Make sure that there's something within you until the day that you die that longs to live for the glory of God and for the good of those that are around you. We are a body. We are not individuals separate from one another. We have been called as the body of Christ to walk together in love. 
And God has adequately gifted every single one of us individually by His Holy Spirit so that we together as a collective and corporate body can be everything that God wants us to be. There doesn't have to be lack in our body. There doesn't have to be lack in our assembly. If every believer in Jesus Christ would believe what the Word of God says about them, that the Spirit of God Himself lives within them, and that by that Spirit they have the ability to ward off hell and to help their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The body of Christ doesn't have to suffer, beloved of God if every individual believer would simply say yes to the call and the purpose of God that is on their life. And when we do this, when we live in a way that truly glorifies God and builds up our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, when like Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, we're going out of our way to make sure that our brothers and sisters are making it. They're walking with Jesus. When we do this, the Bible says that the world will take note of it. You see, the kingdom of God is invisible but its citizens are not. The kingdom of God is invisible, but its citizens are not. Therefore, to the world around us, the kind of life that we choose to live is indicative of who our King is and what His kingdom looks like. This is the same thought that Peter echoes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through And I'm going to read it very quickly because it's very similar to what Paul is doing here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through This is what Peter says to those who had been, according to chapter 1, scouted abroad. In other words, believers in Christ who were having to deal with a lot of persecution and problems in their time. They had a lot of reasons, at least according to our estimation, to scatter and hide and not live for the benefit of one another. To really just live selfish, uh, uh, self-centered lives. But this is what he says to them. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That you may, this is the reason why you've been bought, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, or as pilgrims, abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, don't try or don't give in to living like the world around you. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Watch this, verse 12. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, watch this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. 
And so you really see from both, both Paul and the Apostle Peter the reason that we must live in a way that defies any cultural norms that are not kingdom norms, right? You, you see the reason from both of them. It's because we have been bought with the price of Jesus' blood, and it's because the world is looking at our lives as, to, as evidence as to whether or not Jesus really is who He claims to be in His Word. Once again, the kingdom of God is invisible, but its citizens are not. And people are looking to us to determine what our king really looks like and what his kingdom really looks like. And what I love about Paul in all of his writings is that when he challenges us in our faith, and he does it here in chapter 6, when he challenges us in our faith, he not only highlights our need for growth, but he also always, without fail, highlights the resources necessary for that growth to be real and actual in our lives. If we're honest, by ourselves, left to ourselves, we tend to naturally live selfishly. Left to ourselves, without the Spirit of God motivating us and empowering us and transforming us, we're not motivated, nor are we capable of living a Christ-like kind of life. But this is what I deeply love about the Gospel that Paul preaches, the New Covenant. It doesn't tell us what to do and then leave us in our paralysis. The Gospel tells us what to do, and then the Gospel empowers us to actually do it. You see, true New Covenant teaching will always highlight responsibility and ability. That you are responsible because you are a part of God's kingdom to live your life in a certain way. But with that reason and with that responsibility, you have been given the Spirit of God which enables you to actually live that kind of a life. This is grace, guys. It's Titus chapter 2. It's the grace of God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit motivating us first to want to live our lives differently than what we did before. Motivating us to want to live for the glory of God and the good of other people. And then meeting us in our newfound motivation and desire and actually giving us the supernatural ability to do it. He doesn't tell us to live this way and then leave us to ourselves to carry it out. No, He tells us to live this way and then He gives us the power of His Holy Spirit to do what we can't in our own strength and in our own ability. And I believe that this is exactly what Paul is trying to get across in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, and verse 11 and then in verses 19-20. through 20. If we're not careful, we can read a passage like this and the only thing we come away with is instruction. The only thing we come away with is warning. The only, way we come, the only thing we come away with is this is what I have to do because Paul said I have to do it. But if you read the verses closely, verses 11 and then verses 19 and 20, I believe what Paul is saying is this. Two things. Number one, 
because of our position in Christ, we should live differently. But secondly, because of our position in Christ, we can live differently. Don't lose sight of Paul in both instances. After correcting them for their public disputes and after correcting them for their sexually immoral behavior, don't lose sight of after both of those corrections, Paul highlighting the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't lose sight of it. Because it is, it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the supernatural ability to abstain from these fleshly lusts and to be everything that God has called us to be. At the end of verse 11, you see that Paul's answer to their dilemma is Christ's work for them. You've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this because of their newfound identity in Christ, this should serve as their motivation, but it's also Christ's work in them. The work that by His Spirit, in verse 11, God has started in them, and this should result in their empowerment. Beloved, the cross has made it possible for us to live lives that look like Jesus and impact the world around us. By God's Holy Spirit, we have been given both the desire to love like Jesus and the supernatural ability to do so. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so Paul says, knowing this, in verse 20, knowing that the Spirit of God lives within you, knowing that you're not left to yourself to carry out living this kind of a life, knowing that God is not requiring of you something that He's not empowering you to do, knowing that God Himself lives within you. Paul says, therefore, knowing all of that, Glorify God in your body. In other words, why would you settle for mediocrity? Why would you settle for defeat? Why would you settle for a life that looks just like the world around you when by the Spirit of God that lives within you, you can live differently? You can live differently. When by the Spirit of God, you one day can be one of those from Hebrews chapter 12 who are in the cloud of witnesses looking down on those who are fighting in their faith and you can be cheering them on. Why would you settle for less than making it there? Why would you settle for less than living a life of faith if you know, if you know that you've not only been bought and redeemed by His blood, but you've been filled with His Holy Spirit, why would you settle for anything less? Because we belong to the kingdom of God, we are not only required, but we are also enabled to live in a way that glorifies God. You must know that today. You must know that. And then Paul goes on to talk about the results 
of choosing to live differently. When we choose to be empowered by God to live countercultural lives, we become agents of God's glory and God's majesty in the earth. This is the result every time. Maybe they won't always stop and acknowledge who we are. Maybe they won't always stop and acknowledge that God is living in us. But according to the Scriptures, when we choose to yield to this kind of a life, when we choose to say yes to what God intends to do in and through us by His Holy Spirit, to live lives that are solely motivated by the glory of God and the good of those who are around us, when we choose to live that kind of a life, the Bible declares over and over again, Paul, Peter, and others make it very clear that we become the agents through which God's glory and majesty are revealed in the earth. Living opposite to what some were living in 1 Corinthians 6 will provide the world with an opportunity to know the love of Jesus Christ. When we are willing to go the extra mile, when we are willing to be defrauded and slandered without defrauding and slandering in return, when we are not willing for our brother and sister to go without spiritual encouragement, uplifting, and even natural provisions, then Jesus says the world will know that you are my disciples. In a culture that pressures us to live carelessly and recklessly, we must, beloved of God, strive to maintain an upward and outward focus. We must. It's incumbent upon us. The trajectory of our world right now is everyone live for the benefit of themselves. Do what you can to make it to the top. And if anybody gets in the way of you getting there, you make sure they're taken out of the way. That's just the trajectory of our world. And we as the body of Christ must not fall into that trap. Singers and musicians, uh, you can come, maybe Brandon, if you mind just coming to play something. Now I understand this morning, you might would look at chapter 6 and you might say, man, that's like some extreme stuff. You know, I'm, I'm not practicing sexual immorality. I'm not taking my brother to court. I'm I'm not abusing the people that are around me with the liberties I've been given in Christ. Like that's Those are some extremes. And I would agree that those are extreme practices for the church to be engaging in. But I believe that the point of 1 Corinthians 6 and really the book as a whole is that you and I at certain moments of our lives are, should find it necessary to examine all of our lives. And I think there are times when we have to ask ourselves the question, are there ways in which I'm living that disadvantages the people that are around me? Are there ways by which my life could be lived more fully for the benefit of those who are around me? Are the people around me really able to see the life of Christ being manifest in me and through me? Not just by my proclamation and my declaration on Sunday morning, but by the way in which I live for their benefit and for their welfare. 
some very practical ways by which we can examine ourselves just from the book of 1 Corinthians alone. 1 Corinthians 1-4, through 4, Paul deals with divisions. How that there were people in the body who were unnecessarily dividing the body amongst itself. And we can ask ourselves things like, am I causing unnecessary divisions? Or am I really striving alongside my brothers and sisters for unity and for empowerment? Do I see the value of community and gathering in the Lord's name? Or are there maybe times in my life where I'm, I'm abusing the freedoms and liberties that God has given me? And it doesn't mean that every day of our life has to be lived in the house of God, but it just means that we're aware of the spiritual gifts and resources that God has given us. And we're willing at any point in time in our lives to use those resources, to use those gifts for the betterment and the welfare of those who are around us. And we can ask ourselves, am I really using the gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has given me to really build up my brothers and sisters in Jesus? And it's maybe not just brothers and sisters in this church. It's the body of Christ as a whole. There are ways by which we can examine ourselves. And I want to say as I close that this is not to condemn any of us. But it is to challenge all of us it is not to condemn any of us but it is to challenge all of us if there was ever a time beloved hear me hear me if there was ever a time in which we needed to learn to live for the benefit of one another it's now I'm not a prophet I don't claim to be one But I have a feeling that in the coming days and in the coming years, things may very well get harder for us as the body of Christ. If we continue on the trajectory that we are on as a nation and even as a world, it's going to be very hard to call yourself a Christian in 10 to 20 years from now. Times may get difficult for us as the people of God like it was for the people of God in this time but can I tell you something that love 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 is the fuel that will drive this vehicle called the body of Christ through any persecution any adversity any opposition and any hostility that hell can throw our way, love, love, love will cause us to make it to the end. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, after giving this all sorts of exhortations to the people of God who are experiencing difficulty and trial, he says to them, above all these things, have fervent love for one another. More important than anything that I've said up to this point, Peter says, have fervent love for one another. Be willing to live your life for the betterment and welfare of those that are around you. Allow the love of Jesus 
not only to captivate your own heart, but to captivate the hearts of others through you. Above all, love one another. Would you stand with me this morning? As we begin to just pray, I want to make it very clear that living for the glory of God or the good of others, it doesn't mean that you neglect your personal well-being. It doesn't mean that you disregard the needs, maybe even spiritually, that you have in your life. It's never that you neglect or ignore your emotional or spiritual well-being. It's that you realize that you are best emotionally and spiritually when you are faithfully serving the King and His Kingdom. Because we belong to the Kingdom of God, we are enabled to live in a way that glorifies Him. Maybe this morning you needed the instruction, you needed the reminder, or maybe you just need empowerment to do what you already know in your heart is right to do. Either way, God in His grace is here to meet us this morning. He's here to empower us. He's here to motivate us in a fresh and a new way to serve Him. To the disregard of our own sometimes selfish interest. To the regard of His in the earth. Father, I thank You. God, I pray in the next few moments, Lord, You would meet with us. God, whether that's for instruction or empowerment, whatever it means this morning, God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to live our lives in a way, God, that really does bring you glory. To see our brother and our sister, God, as those that you've died to save and those that you've called us to minister to. To look around us and to see, God, the people that are around us as people that You dearly love and people that You want to dearly love through us. God, would You help us, Lord. Help us today, God, to love You more. And in turn, we know that that will, God, cause us to love the people around us even more. In Jesus' name. We're going to worship and just want to encourage you to allow the Lord to speak to your heart this morning and whatever that looks like.